Love Talk Radio. I do not have COVID. <laughs> I am not Rudy Giuliani and coughing through an interview where I almost certainly have the Rona. Um, I do have a jam-packed show for you tonight. We got the VP debate coming up. Um, tonight, I will very likely be live tweeting the, uh, the VP debate. Don't expect a breakdown immediately after it. Um, at some point, I'll give you a generic breakdown of it, but in all seriousness, I'm pretty much expecting it to suck. Pretty much expecting it to be two boring robotic politicians spewing their predictable talking points to each other. So I will not be doing an immediate, um, you know, thorough VP debate breakdown in the aftermath, but I very likely will be live tweeting it tonight. I very likely will be live tweeting it, so you have that to look forward to. Me being a smarmy jackass, which, <clears throat> in all seriousness, I should probably change the name of the show to Smarmy Jackass Time with Kyle Klinsky. It's like real time with Bill Maher, except Smarmy Jackass Time with Kyle Klinsky. Anyway, um, so President Trump did one of his worst decisions yet. We're going to talk about that. We're going to lead with that. I got some Joe Biden town hall stuff to show you. I have uh, Kamala Harris being profiled by L Magazine, L-E-L, I don't know what it, how it's pronounced because I'm not a housewife. Um, <clears throat> then we have Ben Collins of NBC News reporting on a crackdown from Facebook on QAnon. 
Ben Shapiro's in the show, a lot of stuff today. Let's jump right into it. Here we go with Trump and his worst decision. President Trump made one of his worst decisions ever this week, and I know that's tough because he's made a lot of bad decisions. Trump kills stimulus talks, tweets no deal until after I win election. In the minutes after his tweet, the Dow Jones Industrial Average plunged more than 400 points. So he killed the talks on another round of stimulus payments. Now, when he realized that the market was plunging and he saw that he was getting universal negative coverage, he changed his tune. And he went on Twitter and he was doing a, you know, late night tweet storm, the likes of which we haven't seen in a long time, where he was relentless and there were a lot of capital letters and a lot of exclamation points. Um, And he was trying to reverse course a little bit. He was trying to say, uh, you know, that it's it's not my fault, it's crazy Nancy Pelosi's fault. Um, And he even went as far as to say, get a bill to my desk now of $1,200 payments and I'll sign it immediately. And he tagged Nancy Pelosi, Mitch McConnell, um, you know, his chief of staff, everybody who would be involved in, in doing such a deal. And what's amazing is today Jeff Stein of the Washington Post is reporting that, as per usual, that was all bluster from Trump, that, no, the negotiations are actually dead, and it was Trump and the Republicans who killed it, and they're not going to do a $1,200 stimulus check because Trump, to the extent he actually wants it, and who knows, because he slapped it down yesterday, but now he says he wants it, not like the other Republicans are going to be like, rock and roll on that. I think Mitch McConnell would be first in line to say, yeah, I'm not doing that. Why? Because he's Mitch McConnell. You think he cares about regular Americans and how they're doing in this horrific time where everybody's struggling? He doesn't care. He doesn't care. So um, Trump killed the stimulus talks, pretended to resurrect them. They're still dead, which leads to this next devastating point. Suicide Prevention Info treads on unemployment board after Trump slams door on COVID stimulus. Listen, if you want to be humbled, if you want an eye-opening experience, if you want a, a slap across the face, here's what you do. You go read the Reddit unemployment page because that will awaken you and enlighten you in a way that perhaps nothing else will. That page will turn you from, you know, some sort of milk toast centrist into a flaming lefty. Because when you realize the extent of the pain and the suffering and the damage and the poverty and the degradation that's out there, you understand radical change is actually the common sense position. So, listen, to put it as simply as possible, Washington, D.C. decided we're going to screw you. That's what we're going to do. We're going to screw you. And they're comfy. They're cozy. Some insanely high percentage of the politicians in D.C. are millionaires. So they are quite cushioned from the blow 
of COVID-19 and the economic fallout. You know, they have their job. They get paid a lot of money for it, and they don't even have to work that many days for it. They are colossally disconnected from your average American. And when you look at how we dealt with COVID-19 versus other developed countries, it really is amazing. Most developed countries did one form or another of, like, nationalizing their wages. So they did shutdowns, and then people would get paid anywhere from 75% to 85% of their usual wages without working, and the government picks up the tab, and nobody gets fired. That was, like, the most straightforward way to deal with this thing, and we didn't do that. Well, if you're not going to do that and you're going to shut down, you have to do a recurring monthly payment. Guess what? We shut down, and we didn't do a recurring monthly payment. We did a, what was it, a one-time $1,200 or $1,600 payment, which, I mean, the effects of that are gone, gone, gone. And so how do you have an economy that's collapsing and then no lifeline, no support? Of course you're going to see the economic implosion. You set it up so that happens. Duh. (laughs) Of course you're going to see that. Of course you're going to see over 30% of the American people can't make rent. Of course you're going to see 28 million on the brink of homelessness. I mean, this is, this is really stunning. And um, they're just totally disconnected. They don't care. They don't know and they don't care, or to the extent they know, they still don't care. <laughs> Either they're totally cushioned from it and they really don't know the hurt that's out there, or they know the hurt that's out there and they're just callous to it, callous about it. And they're like, yeah. It is what it is. What am I supposed to do? Well, you're Washington, D.C. You're supposed to represent the people. The people are crystal clear with all the solutions that they want. We've seen the numbers now. UBI skyrocketed in popularity in the midst of this crisis. Gee, I wonder why. And here's the thing. People who are getting crushed right now understand that it's not their fault. Like, you could play this game where you pretend like, oh, we already live in a meritocracy, and if you're doing poorly, it's on you. You can maybe pull that trick on some people who are not too perceptive in normal times. But when you have a pandemic and an economic depression, that trick doesn't work. Because nobody thinks that the people suffering right now are just lazy or that they deserve it. Everybody knows they're getting screwed. And so if you're not going to offer a helping hand in that scenario, you're just begging for the system to be burned down. And you know what? The people will be correct to burn it down because the system that is this non-responsive to their needs is useless and shouldn't exist. It's not a coincidence, by the way, that this happening coincides with a new poll coming out from the Boston Herald. Donald Trump is now 21 points down to Joe Biden. 21 points down. The other day we covered the story where he was 16 points down, and I was like, that's it. I'm pounding the gavel. This election's basically over. Now we got a new poll the very next day, 21 points down nationally. You want to know why? Because there's a pandemic, there's a depression, and numbnuts just shut the door on any more help before the election, which means the American people are going to go, oh, okay, so then you're done. We're not interested in you. Anybody who is remotely on the fence, even people who are leaning Trump, if they're materially impacted by this, and they are, they're going to say, oh, okay, you made my mind up for me. In a a pure anti-Trump swing election, everybody's going to default to Biden. 
A ham sandwich would win. What are you not getting about this? A ham sandwich. Anybody would win against Trump right now because of this kind of stuff. And his political instincts are beyond dulled. Because he's now listened to the likes of Larry Kudlow and other trickle-down fundamentalists and deregulation fundamentalists. He's listened to them time and time and time again about the direction of the economy. Well, guess what, Don? That's the same old, same old. That's the establishment and the status quo and the elites and the moneyed interests. The same people that Trump ripped Hillary for listening to. Trump had so many Goldman Sachs people in his administration, and he listened to them. 2017 tax cut law for the wealthy. So he pretended to be this outsider. Now he's acting as the ultimate insider, the epitome of the establishment. And now the chickens are coming home to roost. I really think Trump rejecting the stimulus yesterday was the nail in the coffin for sure. He was already, I already had kind of pounded the gavel, but then when you add the he rejected the stimulus, gavel quadruple pounded. This thing is over. This thing is over. And now he's on Twitter today all desperate, tweeting about Obamagate this and like all this all this Fox News grandpa or Facebook grandpa nonsense that he's obsessed with because he's too deep in that bubble now and he lost all of his political instincts, there are no more normie issues he's focusing on. And the fact that he rejected the stimulus is such a great example of that. He thought he was playing hardball. He literally tweeted, like, I'm instructing the Republicans to not negotiate with Nancy anymore. Congratulations, you just cost yourself the election. Okay, next. We are going to go to Joe Biden doing his little town hall. As much as, um, as, much as Trump is fucking up, it's not like Joe Biden is doing well. Okay, so let's just, let's just get on the record about that. So Joe Biden did a town hall event, and he gave us a preview of what a Biden presidency is going to look like. Mr. Vice President, so you talk a lot about unity and, and division, but it seems now more than ever there's a divisiveness in the country that goes way beyond disagreeing with policy or whether you have made the right decision or not. It's either you're with me or you're against me. The role of president, in my opinion, should be to unify as much as possible. So what three actions will you take as president to get us back to being one country versus several little, you know, fiefdoms that are trying to yell, yell each other about who's wrong, wrong and right? Well, first of all, uh, there's no reason why you should know, but I think I'm not asking unless you confirm, but he's heard my entire career I've been able to bring Democrats and Republicans together. And now people say, well, that was the old days, Joe. Things have changed. Well, the only thing that's changed is the way in which the politics that has been moved by some in the party have just gotten really ugly. I think what happens is I think when people see if, in fact, I'm fortunate enough to win, I think the absence of the president's willingness to go after and hold anyone accountable who disagrees with him like he did 
to his former attorney general down in Alabama when I campaigned against him when he left the office. Uh, people are going to be less, less unwilling to compromise, number one. That's delusional. That is completely delusional. Now, understand, everybody, just because Trump is messing up in a historic way and he's, like, abysmal in how horrendous a candidate he's become does not mean that Joe is doing good. It means that Joe is doing better than Trump, but that's really not a a hard thing to do. It's like being the tallest kid in kindergarten. Congratulations. You're slightly better than the dumbest man on the planet who's having a meltdown on a daily basis because he's high on COVID-19 treatment drugs. <laughs> I mean, like, it's, it's just, it's absurd. So let me explain why this is beyond delusional. Dude, you were just in the White House with Barack Obama for eight years. You guys did nothing but reach out to Republicans all the time. And every single time they spit in your eye, Every single time. You did a Republican health care plan. That was Mitt Romney's plan. That was the Heritage Foundation plan. It's the individual mandate. It keeps the for-profit health insurance companies in control. It was their idea. And none of them voted for it. Zero voted for it. So when you say, oh, I've, my whole career I've brought Democrats and Republicans together, and I'll tell you, they'll be more reasonable with Trump gone. But they weren't reasonable before Trump was there. It's not like John Boehner was holding hands with Obama and they were singing Kumbaya and passing good policies. It's not like Mitch McConnell previously was, you know, philosophically more aligned with Noam Chomsky. <laughs> like, what are, you, what are you talking about? This idea that the fever is going to break and they're going to be reasonable, it is sh- sheer madness. It's total madness. But that gets to the next point, which is he says, oh, I'm going to bring Democrats and Republicans together. In his career, when has he done that? He's only done that to do Republican ideas. And this is the problem. When they talk about compromise in Washington, D.C., run for the hills. Because here's what they mean. We're going to compromise. Democrats and Republicans are going to agree to do more war. Democrats and Republicans are going to agree to deregulate Wall Street. Democrats and Republicans are going to agree to cut taxes for the wealthy. This is the stuff that whenever there's agreement, it's always on the Republican priorities. That's why Numbnuts here was bragging in the Senate about trying to cut a deal to cut Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid because he thinks he values that bipartisanship so much that it's like as long as we're agreeing to something, the details don't matter. I'll agree to do these right-wing priorities and then I'll pat myself on the back for being such an amazing unifier or whatever. Which gets to the most important point, which is this. Listen, there are two kinds of unity. And one of them is really good, and the other one is really, really bad. Okay? The good unity is the American people, so not the corrupt elites in D.C. who are screwing us all. The American people getting together and realizing and saying to each other, hey, I'm American, you're American. We're part of the same family. We may have our differences. We may have our disagreements. But ultimately, we're one and the same. And um, here are the things that we agree on. And guys, let me tell you something. There's a lot of things that the American people agree on. 
They overwhelmingly want to end the wars. They overwhelmingly want to raise the minimum wage. They overwhelmingly want to raise taxes on the rich. They overwhelmingly want Medicare for all. According to one poll, even a majority of Republicans, 51%, wants Medicare for all. That's the good unity. The good unity is let's have Americans get together and along class lines agree to fundamental common sense economic reform. That's the good kind of unity, and that's the kind of unity I'll get behind all day, every day. But there's a bad kind of unity. The bad kind of unity is what Joe Biden is alluding to here. The bad kind of unity is when elected Democrats and Republicans get together and cut deals, and they cut deals that always serve their corporate donors and screw the American people. So when they start talking about unity in Washington, D.C., again, they're not unifying to help you. They're unifying to screw you. And Joe, this is the kind of unity that Joe likes and loves. And I have no doubt that if he's president, it will be the same old, same old status quo. It'll be just like the Obama years. Let's call in the Republicans. Let's cut deals with them on their terms and do what they want. And those things always end up being really unpopular because people don't want the Republican priorities. They don't want to just serve corporations and fight endless wars. But see, that's the thing. Joe agrees with them, not just because he's ideologically half in agreement with them. He also agrees with them because he's corrupt just like they are. He takes the big money just like they do. And this is the problem. So listen, again, let's stop pretending. If, if you're on the left, let's stop pretending that there's any prayer of Joe Biden being a lefty. There's any prayer of Joe Biden being, you know, the most progressive president since FDR. Just stop pretending, because that's not going to happen. And you have to deny his entire record in order to come to that conclusion. So you need to do wishful thinking in order to come to that conclusion. If you want to vote for Joe, and you want to make the case for Joe, and it's an honest case of just he's not as bad as Trump, totally fine. I'm not going to disagree with you. You say whatever you want. I think I start getting triggered when people start pretending, we're going to push him left. Push him left how? This guy who brags every single time he's talking, giving a speech, or at a town hall or whatever, he bashes Bernie Sanders, bashes, bashes the socialists, says, F you to the left, and he says stuff like this, and lets you know, hey, my whole career, I'm a neoliberal corporatist. When I'm elected, I will be a neoliberal corporatist. He's, he's silly enough to say, hey, the fever's going to break and they'll be more reasonable when Trump is gone. That's objectively not true. And the establishment Republicans are the same. The only difference is Trump also does mean tweets. That's it. That's the only difference. So you know what's going to happen if Joe gets elected? Exactly what you think is going to happen. He's going to cut deal after deal doing right-wing priorities. Now, again, at the end of the day, for some very basic reasons, it might end up being a better administration than Trump. Listen, all he has to do is not escalate further with Iran, and his presidency would be better than Trump's. Like, Trump and neocons running his administration literally want to fight a war with Iran. This is the guy who's part of the administration who did the Iran nuclear agreement, which is one of the, if not the best thing they did, one of the best things they did. So if he just stops wanting to fight war with Iran and gets back in that agreement, on that alone, he could be better than Trump. But my point is, don't delude yourself into thinking that it's going to be, you know, some sort of amazing left-wing FDR-like presidency. It's just not. It's going to be corporatism 
and bipartisanship, and he's going to govern like it's 1996, and he doesn't understand the moment that we're really in. He doesn't understand that we have a pandemic, and we have a depression, and that it's not, like, I, I don't doubt that he'd be a lot better on the pandemic and that he wants everybody to wear a mask and might do a national mask mandate or something like that. That'd be wonderful. But is he going to go all in on an economic response that's necessary? Is he going to do universal basic income? He's not for it. His running mate, Kamala Harris, had $2,000 a month for the remainder of the crisis. He's not for it. So it's going to be the same old, same old. He doesn't grasp what's going on right now. He just wants to be president, and he'll do exactly what he's done throughout his whole career, which is I'm going to work with the right and act like that's savvy, and that makes me some sort of, you know, some sort of hero. That's, what, that's why they called it, we're working on the grand bargain. What was the grand bargain? To cut entitlements. They thought that that was like this grandiose thing that everybody would pat them on the back. And they frame it as, we had to cut entitlements in order to save it. I'm sure. I'm sure. In the same way that you had to overthrow a foreign government to protect democracy somehow. <laughs> Intervening with guns and overthrowing a government is somehow bringing about more democracy and more freedom. That's a contradiction, right? I'm saving these programs by cutting them. Take the money from grandma because of the deficit or something. Aren't I such a hero? No, you're not. No, you're not. You're a joke. And this is what we mean when we say there is no Democratic Party in this country. There's the Republican Party and the Diet Republican Party. And Joe is the quintessential example of the Diet Republican. All right, next. So Joe Biden's town hall had a bunch of moments that made me wince. Um, This is probably the worst of them. He's throwing Bernie under the bus and the left under the bus yet again. Uh, Cuban American and Venezuelan voters here in South Florida are being targeted with messages by the Trump campaign claiming that a vote for Joe Biden is a vote for the radical left and socialism and even communism. What can you tell uh, people in my family, my friends, who are understandably concerned with that issue that would make them feel comfortable voting for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris? And let, me just, let me just point out, we have about three or four minutes left. I look like a socialist. Look, I'm the guy that ran against the socialists. Remember, I got in trouble with the whole campaign, 20-some candidates. Joe Biden was too centrist, too moderate, too straightforward. That was Joe Biden. I have taken on the very people that, in fact, we're worried about. I've taken on the Castros of the world. I've taken on the Putins of the world. I've taken on all these dictators. I haven't cozied up to them. I'm the guy that's been straightforward with them. I'm the guy that's let them know it stops here. It stops with me. It stops with me as president. I am no more socialist than our communist than Donald Trump is. Well, I won't say it. Anyway. So they need not worry. Just look at the record. There's not one single syllable that I've ever said that could lead you to believe that I was a socialist or a communist. Before I criticize, I will say this. 
he's being honest. He's being honest. So for what that's worth, and I do think you get points for honesty, that's, that's the truth, you know. There's no BSing in that answer, that's for sure. He doesn't like the left at all. And so he's like, no, that's, I'm not a socialist, I'm not a communist, I'm not... He's not even like center-left. Who are we kidding? But anyway, so I, I do give credit that he's not like Mayor Pete, where Mayor Pete went around when he first launched his presidential campaign, and he gave interviews where he would say, I'm for Medicare for all, and he'd make arguments in favor of Medicare for all. And then as soon as he realized that that lane was kind of taken... The left-wing lane was really owned by Bernie Sanders. He went like this. All right, I'm going to try a new strategy and become the exact opposite of what I just was. And so I find that more Weasley. And so I hate Mayor Pete more than Biden because at least Biden's never, he was never BSing me the whole time. He's just like, yeah, I don't like you. And I don't like Medicare for all. And I don't like socialism or communism. Okay. All right. So we know where we stand. Right. Exactly. Gotcha. All right. Now, a few things. When he, when he says at the beginning, like, I'm not a communist, I'm not a socialist. Remember, I was the one who was getting beaten up in the primary debates. You could say that again. Um, they said he's too centrist. They said he's too moderate. They said he's too straightforward. <laughs> not a single person in human history has ever criticized you by saying, Joe, you're too straightforward. Imagine that's what, like, a left criticism of Joe was. Joe, you're being way too straightforward, man. Stop it. That's not a thing. (laughs) Obviously, that's not a thing. That's ridiculous. Um, He said, um, all these dictators are the people that I've taken on. I'm the guy who's taken on these people that you're talking about. That's how he frames it. That really is troubling that in his mind, he hears socialism, and he immediately equates it to, like, evil dictators. That says a lot about him. That says a lot about him. He's willing to throw in like right-wing authoritarian thugs like Putin and act like that's, that's socialism, that's representative of the left, broadly speaking. That's a problem, man. And I think it shows what he really thinks of the Democratic base, what, it, what he really thinks of the actual left in this country and the Bernie Sanders supporters and Bernie himself. He's incredibly smug and dismissive of them, and he views them as crazy. And so, again, this is further evidence that don't expect him to do, oh, the most progressive president since FDR. He's, he's bashing the philosophy of FDR. This guy would lump in social Democrats with authoritarians. And this really is messed up because when you look at what Bernie's been doing, Bernie's been going everywhere around the country, doing rallies for Joe, doing interviews for Joe, really pushing for Joe. Now, Bernie also did that for Hillary, but let's not kid ourselves that he liked Hillary. He doesn't like Hillary. He hated Hillary, but he sucked it up and did it because he thought it was the right thing. He actually likes Joe, and so he's doing this, and he's like kind of enthusiastic about trying to help Joe. And as he's going around the country campaigning for, doing more campaigning for Joe than Joe is doing for himself, Joe's doing stuff like this in these interviews, in these town halls. So what would have been an acceptable answer? What would have been something that wouldn't have led to me doing a segment on this? Listen, if Joe told the truth up front, yes, I'm not a communist, I'm not a socialist, but then he said something along the lines of, my friend Bernie Sanders is accused of 
of being a bad person simply because he wants to give people health care, simply because he wants to give people education and end the wars. Well, he's my friend, and he's a good person, and him and I might not agree on everything, but we certainly agree we should fix this country, and the demonization of the left has to stop. If he said that, are you kidding me? Actually, let me correct something I just said. It's not that I wouldn't cover that and give him a pass. I would cover that and give him credit. I give him credit. And the crazy thing is, there are instances, now, to be clear, Trump most of the time is bashing the left relentlessly and smearing radical, socialist, communist, whatever, right? But remember, at the RNC, they actually did a, a, a video that was like Democratic Socialist for Trump. They literally did a promotional video like that, trying to make the argument like, hey, if you're like a disaffected Bernie bro, come, come with us on the Republican side. Don't do it. <laughs> I mean, they're crazy, and they're lying to you, and they hate you and everything you stand for. The point is, there was enough of somebody on the team was smart enough to realize, hey, let's actually reach out. But the way that Biden and the corporate Democrats view the left, and there's a lesson in here too, guys, is they're always going to be there. Where the fuck else are they going to go? They already keep pledging their vote to me, so what do I have to do for them? Dickie McGee's acts. And I could make fun of them and snub them and compare them with authoritarians in a town hall, and there's going to be no repercussions to it. There's an article that just came out the other day. A lot of prominent Bernie supporters are like, man, he's really got to stop bashing us. People are getting sick of this. He knows he has your vote. He knows you're not going anywhere. So, of course, he's going to keep doing this because he can get away with it. You see what the problem is when you pledge the vote up front months before the election? He's not going to listen to you. You're, you're a given. You're guaranteed. So who's he going to appeal to? The people who are on the fence, who are in their mind, who do they think is on the fence? Oh, the moderate Republican. Hence, roll out a million moderate Republicans. All of his rhetoric is pro-moderate Republican policies. You see how this works? Which is why I was yelling at Bernie towards the end of the race. I was saying, listen, what you do is you have a meeting with Joe Biden and you tell him, I'm staying in the race unless you agree to certain things. And, yeah, is that going to fracture the Democratic Party? Yeah. Might it, make, might it make it more difficult for you to be Trump? Yeah. But I'm not going to endorse you, and I'm not going to campaign for you. I'll sit out the election if you don't meet some of my policy demands. Here's the list of my policy demands. Here's a list of 10 executive orders that I want you to guarantee me that you'll do within the first 100 days. And I'm going to go public with this so everybody knows so there's no wiggling out of it. And as I told you guys, in a situation like that, I think they would have cut a deal. They would have cut a deal so that Biden gets the support of the guy who had a solid 30% block of the Democratic base with him. If Biden knew, hey, I might be putting on my middle finger to 30% of the base and they might leave for good, then he might listen. Then he might realize, whoa, we got work to do. Instead, they just did the nonsense unity commission, which is all stuff he's going to ignore anyway because he's not on record. He's not on paper. He's not. There is no clear set of demands. So, yeah, I think that there was a giant tactical mistake from Bernie where he could have, if Bernie had gotten five or ten concessions in the form of executive orders, he could have literally held up a sheet of paper and waved it in, a, in the face of a guy like me and said, if you, if you don't vote for Biden, you're leaving this on the table. And I would have felt like an asshole. And I'd have been like, you know what, Bernie, you're right. I see some stuff on that list. 
that really is super important to me. So I think you're right, but he didn't do that. And the left all signed on, got nothing but pats on the head. You know, let's form a committee. Committee. You need a committee to study something where we already know what the goddamn answers are? Like, people, do people want to be BS'd in politics? Because it looks like they do. (laughs) So it's just, it's depressing. But anyway, so now here we are. Every time there's a town hall, every time there's a debate, every time there's an interview, hey, Socialism, communism, bad. What say you, Joe? Yeah, socialism, communism, bad. Bro, I beat the, I beat him. I beat Bernie. I beat Bernie. I'm not with those people. I'm not with them at all. Vote for me, everybody else. Way to keep reminding the young, disaffected lefties who are struggling to bring themselves to vote for you, Joe. Way to remind them that you hate them. And they're going to be like, okay, I hate you too. I said it before. I'll say it again. He will not stop until every single young, disaffected lefty who votes for him does it with tears in their eyes. That's the goal. That's the goal. So, it's just upsetting. Just, I, if I was running Joe's campaign, what would I say to them to course correct, to try to make sure they have the left going forward. He's already up big in the polls. And so I, at this point, he, he's not going to care because he actually can win without the left, let's be honest. At this point, the way the polls are and how bad Trump is doing, that's the case. But outside of the advice I already gave in terms of, like, talking positively about his friend Bernie, um, I would say you got to take two or three policies where nominally you're on the right side and really drill it home and make people believe you're for it. So, for example, he's nominally – for a $15 minimum wage, Joe Biden is. Now, you might say, whoa, I didn't know that. Right, you didn't know that. You want to know why? Because he never talks about it. You want to know why my suspicion is that he never talks about it? Because he doesn't really believe in it. That's why I don't think he talks about it. I think it's one of those yeah, 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 okay, I'll make the concession nominally. And then he never talks about it. It's the same way that Hillary said, like, oh, yeah, no, no, I'm against TPP now. Oh, are you? Oh, are you? You just spent a year and a half pushing it relentlessly, and the only reason you did this is because you felt pressure from Bernie and pressure from the left, and you're like, oh, okay, fine, yeah, no, 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 I'm not for that. But she never talked about it. Why? Because she actually was for TPP. I don't think Joe is really for a $15 minimum wage. But if he were to go out there every time he has a speech or every time he does an interview and he keeps bringing up the $15 minimum wage and he really starts acting like he's for it, well, then there's going to be a lot of people who are like, you know what, I think I could vote for him now because he keeps talking about this issue that means a lot to me. But what do we get most of the time? Left bashing and then the other... You know, most of the time it's it's nonsense about unity and togetherness and just platitude sandwiches, cliche, cliche sandwiches all day, every day, where he really is saying nothing of substance. So anyway, um, this segment's dragging on far too long here. I'm just babbling at this point. But for the love of God, Joe, stop reminding the left that you hate us. Okay. Next. Next, 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 next. All right. So, L Magazine, Ellie Magazine, I'm not sure how you pronounce that. Um, They are profiling. VP candidate Kamala Harris. So they say, 
As November 3rd looms, Vice Presidential nominee Kamala Harris is urging Americans to feel hopeful. Quote, optimism is the fuel driving every fight I've been in. So um, if you hear that and you think, I don't even know what that means. What does that mean? Optimism is the fuel driving every fight. It's like, it's like you, something you read on a fortune cookie. Um, well, the article is full of stuff like that. I'm just, let me just read you like the beginning part so you get a sense of what the article is like. Senator Kamala Harris started her life's work young. She laughs from her gut the way you would with family as she remembers being wheeled through an Oakland, California civil rights march in a stroller with no straps with her parents and her uncle. At some point, she fell from the stroller. Few safety regulations existed for children's equipment back then. And the adults caught up in the rapture of the protest just kept on marching. By the time they noticed little Kamala was gone and doubled back, she understandably was upset. Quote, my mother tells the story about how I'm fussing, Harris says. And she's like, baby, what do you want? What do you need? And I just looked at her and I said, freedom. She actually, they spell it with the W, freedom, like a kid saying freedom. Yes, baby Kamala, yes. What an amazing moment where we knew at that moment she was going to be a leader in the future. Um, I'll give you just some more because this is, this is the gist of the article. Quote, unity is when everyone is respected and has an equal voice. We have to be very clear-eyed about what we mean and that what we mean is not about a Hallmark card. You just did the thing that you said we shouldn't do. <laughs> you just did the thing. We have to be very clear-eyed about what it means, about what unity means, and it's not about a Hallmark card. Well, you just gave me a Hallmark card. Unity is when everybody is respected and has an equal voice. That's a Hallmark card. More. Justice is not about benevolence or charity. It is about every human being being given God being... It's about every human being's God-given right. I'll repeat that. Justice is not about benevolence or charity. It is about every human being's God-given right. These things don't mean anything, bro. Okay, see, this is... I feel like over the years I've become more sensitive on this stuff. And honestly, what happened is Obama scarred me. Obama scarred me. Because imagine, you know, young Kyle, 2008, 20 years old, Voting for Obama, he wins, shed a tear that night. Oh, my God. Not only did we elect the first black president, but the dude was arguing for some pretty significant left-wing changes on the campaign trail. I for sure thought, at the very least, he's going to end these wars and do it fast. <laughs> Little did I know. <laughs> but over time, I got scarred. Why? Because Obama, the more he would give speeches, the more he would talk, the more I realized... He wasn't saying anything anymore. Like, he started out by saying things that seemed somewhat realistic, realistic, like ending the wars. And then over time, it became more just airy, platitude, cliche, garbage that doesn't actually mean anything. It's like, they use flowery words to fill the room with noise while not actually saying anything. And that became, it eventually got to the point where that was literally all he could ever do. Every time he talked, it was just that. And so I got scarred. And now the association I make is anytime somebody fills the room with noise, 
and flowery words, it's because they're avoiding making any concrete policy promises because they don't have any, because they don't believe in anything. And this is what I get with Kamala. And I got to be honest, man, now maybe this makes me a bad guy. Maybe I'm a little too hardened and a little too cynical by politics. But even just seeing like the pictures in the article and the picture in that tweet where Kamala's like posing and smiling and this like turning of politicians into celebrities, I find absolutely disgusting because their job is to make laws and to fix the system. And they're not doing any of that. They're serving their donors. They're incredibly corrupt. The people are being screwed, and they're getting these, like, photo shoots where they're looking like models, where they're posing. I just, it just, it struck me as so immensely disconnected from the pain and the suffering and the hurt that's out there in the country right now. Because we have a pandemic. We have about 210,000 Americans who are dead from COVID-19. We have what is effectively an economic depression. People are struggling. People can't pay their rent. And you're doing a, a goofy interview where you just spew platitudes and you take like a model photo shoot. God, nobody cares about you. And this isn't personal with Kamala. It's with all these politicians. It's with everybody. Nobody cares about you. Nobody cares about your family life and your personal life. And when was the first time you met your husband? And where were you? And what happened when you were a kid in the stroller? And tell the story about the march that you were at when you fell out of the thing. <laughs> Nobody cares. Nobody cares except overpaid corporate media hacks. Nobody cares. It's like Kamala's speech at the DNC. You got this sense watching it. She was just basking in the glory of herself. Like, the moment, yes, finally I've arrived. Let me tell you how wonderful I am. Let me tell you about my family and whatnot, yes. People can't pay the bills. They need money. They need health care. Medical bills is one of the top causes of bankruptcy in America. The, nobody cares about you. Nobody does. And again, it's not personal. It's not just Kamala. It's any politician. But, like, Donald Trump is so bad that Kamala and Joe are going to be able to get away with this goofy nonsense. And then they're going to learn all the wrong lessons and think, yes, this is how we win. Let's do these goofy, self-promotional, platitude-ridden articles, puff pieces, where I'll pose like a model. It's like, remember when Beto launched and he got the photo shoot in what? Oh, it was a Vanity Fair? It was some magazine where he was doing the photo shoot and he had some goofy quote about like, listen, I'm just bored to be in it, bro. I'm born to vomit reading anything you say and looking at that picture. Like, the nerve of these people, the nerve of all of them, as if we're supposed to just care about their personal lives and whatnot. People want to pay the bills. People want Medicare for all. People want free college. People want to end the wars. People want to raise wages. People want to stop the pandemic. I just, I can't, I can't. I just, it's so disconnected from the hurt that's out there right now. Go read Reddit Unemployment, and then go read the Kamala article in L or Ellie magazine, and tell me you don't want to shove a fork directly in your eyeballs. It 
cult of celebrity. It's the cult of celebrity. You're supposed to just love her for the gloriousness of her. Forget the fact that she was laughing at the idea of legal marijuana as late as 2014. Forget that. Forget the fact that she's a prosecutor and she wanted to go after the parents for truancy of their kids. Forget that. Forget the fact that she refused to prosecute Steve Mnuchin against the wishes of her own office. Steve Mnuchin. Goldman Sachs fraud who was foreclosing on people early with One West Bank in California and kicking grandmas out of their homes. She could have prosecuted him. She didn't. Turns out she had taken money from Steve Mnuchin and his companies or his ilk. Forget the fact she tried to keep somebody locked up after it was proven that they were innocent on a technicality she tried to keep them locked up. Forget that. Forget all that. Let me throw some platitudes your way and do a goofy photo shoot, and then hopefully you get, you know, you think celebrity number one, first, you know, woman of color in this position number two, and that should be enough. And if you object on the celebrity thing or the woman of color thing, maybe I'll just call you a bigot, and you'll sit down and shut up and fall in line. <sighs> Justice is not about benevolence or charity. It's about every human being's God-given right. Unity is when everyone is respected and has an equal voice. We have to be very clear-eyed about what we mean, and that what we mean is not about a Hallmark card. You and Joe, your whole candidacy is a Hallmark card-ass candidacy, and deep down you know that. Who are you kidding? Okay, I am going to take a break. When we come back, um, QAnon, quite an amazing story involving QAnon. Stay right there, y'all. We will be right back.
bitch. I'm back, y'all. I am back. I am back. I am back. Okay. So QAnon is in the news. Now I'm going to explain why to y'all. Ben Collins of NBC tweeted the following. Breaking, Facebook bans QAnon across its platforms. Facebook, quote, will remove Facebook pages, groups, and Instagram accounts for representing QAnon like any other militarized social movement, militia, or terror group. Wow. So Facebook's QAnon ban is the most sweeping content moderation step, he says, I've seen from any social media company so far. This won't just ban certain posts. Facebook will ban groups, pages, and Instagram accounts that post about QAnon. So, if you're a non-QAnon account, but you tweet something about QAnon, you can get deleted. Facebook previously banned QAnon followers that referenced the end game of the conspiracy, which is the purge or mass execution of Democrats and celebrities. Um, Now it goes beyond that, and it's a ban on QAnon groups, pages, Instagram accounts, and if you mention it, you could get banned. So previously they had done like one step, and now they've progressed multiple steps to the point where, like I said, it's anything even vaguely QAnon related is subject to maybe get deleted. And, you know, they claim that the reason why is it, it's like recently the movement has been put on steroids and they're out of control with how much fake news they're spreading. And in some instances, it puts some people at risk because you could be, you know, you could be the subject of one of the conspiracies and they might wrongly accuse you of being a pedophile or something. And so, you know, that could put somebody's life at risk. And we've already seen, remember, remember the Pizzagate scandal where they went to the pizza place in Washington, D.C., and there was a guy who, like, shot up the place or whatever, and that was based off of a lot of the conspiracies that he believed. They thought, you know, Hillary Clinton was running a child sex ring out of the basement of a pizza place in Washington, D.C. So this is, honestly, the media has been pushing for this, for quite a long time, where they've, I've seen so many articles where the media basically has been prodding Facebook, prodding Twitter, prodding social media outlets, like, oh, really? You're just going to let this stuff proliferate on your platform? You're just going to let fake news go? You're just going to let these conspiracy theories go? Well, you're going to swing the election, and the other thing, the other narrative that they've ran with is the election interference narrative, where they talk about these Russian troll accounts influencing the election or whatever. And um, in my opinion, it's really become sort of like this go-to thing for lazy corporate media people where anything they don't like, they just sort of lump it in like, oh, that's just, 
a Russian troll account. They literally tried to blame Black Lives Matter rallies on Russia. And they say, oh, they're stoking the racial divisions in this country. Oh, please. We have plenty of racial divisions as is. It's not like Russia really got involved and like, we're going to create the problem. Or we're going to exacerbate it. It's so easy to just point at like evil, nefarious, foreign actor for all of our problems when clearly we have plenty of problems on our own. So I do think it's a crutch that a lot of corporate media people have leaned on. But yeah, they've been prodding the social media outlets to do more, do more, do more. Protect the integrity of our elections. And really what they mean is start banning and censoring more. Start banning and censoring the things that are fake news or just the things that they think are fake news, right? So, listen, here's the reality of this in my mind. When it comes to the substance of something like QAnon, it's it's just not true. Like, they, they've said so many things that are just verifiably false. Like, we know that they're false. Um, so I'm not in any way, shape, or form defending them on the substance. And also, anytime you do have a situation where there are direct threats of violence, that's totally fair game to get pulled down, because that's even under our First Amendment, you're not allowed to make direct threats of violence. So we can be total free speech absolutists, but there cannot and should not be direct threats of violence. But again, beside that, I, think, I do think this goes way too far. Because what you're saying is anything QAnon-related, okay, well, what if somebody dabbles in the QAnon conspiracy stuff but they never libel or slander anybody and they never talk about mass executions or mass arrests or whatever. So you're not allowed to dabble in a conspiracy at all? Just the fact that if you write QAnon, you might get pulled down? You don't think that's overkill? Now, this is where some people would chime in and say, yeah, but Kyle, it's not true. I know, but that it doesn't matter. <laughs> Like, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that it's not true. Like, these social media outlets are supposed to be a forum where people go and say what they want as long as they're not directly threatening people or harassing people. You know? Like, you're going to have people who have diametrically opposed political opinions. Does that mean you ban the person who's wrong in their opinions? Or has the more outlandish ones? See, my point is, It's not just like, oh, this is a slippery slope that we will go down at some point. My point is, it's a slippery slope, and we're already halfway down that slope. And the perfect example of this is what happened with Reddit. Remember, they banned the Donald, so Trump's Reddit, and who else did they take down? Chapo Trap House. Why? Why did they take it down? Because the way it works is they find questionable things, or, hey, there's too much shit posting, or maybe some threats, or whatever, And so they'll go after the Donald for that. And then they turn around and it's a bunch of right-wingers shriek and moan like, yeah, well, you took down us. What about the far left people? Because they're a problem too. And then the outlets will go, you know, you go searching through with a fine-tooth comb through the Chapo Trap House Reddit. And of course, you're going to find some things that are objectionable. And then, you know, it's one of those things where take out the hatchet, even though you need the scalpel and just ax the whole thing. And that's what they did. And this is going to keep happening. This is going to keep happening. It's not like, hey, once we start allowing these outlets to de-platform whoever they want, they're only going to use it in a reasonable and responsible way. We already know they're not going to use it in a reasonable and responsible way because they haven't. 
They banned the Chapo Trap House Reddit. Like, that's a problem. That's not okay. That's not good. We've seen it with Facebook where they've banned some anti-war groups. We covered a story recently where they went after some environmental groups. They said, oh, you're organizing for a protest against a pipeline. I believe the, the pipeline was in Canada. And they said, you could be organizing for some sort of a terror-related incident here. You're going to do some sort of property damage, and we're not, we can't endorse those kinds of crimes. So they pulled down an environmental page. You see the problem here? It's a package deal, guys. This is the point. You, you can't say, oh, let's uh, start pulling people down, but just limit it to the people I don't like. Just those right-wing assholes. No, you already agreed to it in principle, and now the door's open, and so Chapo Trap House is out, some environmental groups are out, some anti-war groups are out. At some point, somewhere, we're on the list, at some, at, you know, eventually. <laughs> I honestly think one of the reasons why I've kind of skirted and averted a lot of these things to this point is that I'm a white dude and I wear, like, official clothes. I got a button down, I got a jacket on, so people, hmm, he looks somewhat official. I'm not. <laughs> I make fart noises on air and pretend to beat off like I'm Ben Shapiro. <laughs> but I, I'm able to get around it just because of the official clothes, I think. But anyway, I digress. If you don't get that Ben Shapiro reference, that sounded very weird, didn't it? <laughs> a lot of people watching like, wait, what? What did he just say? It's a reference to a video where I, I was pretending to be Ben Shapiro and I, I did something like that or whatever. Anyway, <laughs> I don't know how we ended up where we are. Um, so the next logical question, though, is, okay, so you're going to take down the QAnon people. What about the 9-11 conspiracy? That's, I feel like that's one of those conspiracies that's it's proliferated pretty strongly, but it's also like uniquely despised among elite, elite circles because it kind of indicts a lot of very powerful people. And so they look down on it the most, but it's also one of the conspiracies that's pretty well established as in a decent chunk of people believe it. So what do you do? Okay, take down QAnon. You're not going to take down the 9/11 conspiracy people. You're not gonna, okay. Why stop there? JFK. That's technically technically a conspiracy to say it wasn't just Lee Harvey Oswald. Well, guess what? According to polls, more than half the country doesn't believe the official story. Pull down th- those pages. People who speculate about that. People who bring that up. It just you open the door. You open the door. And then what do you do in instances where it's a conspiracy, but it's proven to be true? Like Gulf of Tonkin, for example. I'm not allowed to talk about that. Now, you could say, Kyle, these things are old. No, the 9-11 one isn't that old, so maybe not. But, again, step further. There are groups where some members of the group are violent, but the group itself isn't necessarily violent, like sovereign citizens. Like, there have been sovereign citizen terrorists who've com- committed attacks, but that doesn't mean that every sovereign citizen is a terrorist. There are plenty of sovereign citizens who just declare that I don't recognize the legitimacy of the U.S. government, and so I don't pay my taxes. They're probably going to get caught at some point, by the way. But there are plenty of people who are part of the sovereign citizens movement who say, yeah, I just don't pay my taxes, but I'm not, I'm not like, going to go hurt anybody. What do you do with those people? Is it, hey, you're part of a group where people have committed attacks, so we're going to pull you down? See makes no sense. And then I haven't even brought up the same argument I just used against sovereign citizens. Like, okay, some people did violence who are sovereign citizens, but all of them haven't. So what do you do? They're going to make the argument against Antifa. They're absolutely going to do it. They're going to say, hey, there are plenty of Antifa people who do violence. 
who burn things down, whatever it might be, or have endorsed violence, what do you do? Pull down those Antifa people, or will they do the same approach they're doing with QAnon, where it's like, no, I'll just ban all of it. Yeah, but what about people who didn't do anything wrong? They're just wrong. They're just factually wrong, but they didn't do anything wrong. They didn't threaten anybody. You going to pull them down? For QAnon, they say yes. What are they going to do for Antifa? I'm asking. I'm asking. Okay, step further. What about black nationalists? What about black nationalists? People who believe in a separate black nation that, you know, they have their arguments. Hey, black people were brought here as slaves against their will, and, you know, they were never given the 40 acres and a mule. They deserve it. Like, there are black nationalists who believe in violence. Should you pull down them, or you pull down all black nationalists? It's just, you open the door, there's no end to it. Mark Zuckerberg used to actually make a free speech argument and say, no, this is, we're not in the business of doing what you guys want us to do. This is what he used to tell the media. You guys want us to curate and filter and deplatform and censor. We're simply not in that business. We're a bathroom wall. People post what they want. That's what it is. Obviously, now he's caving. So, listen, you guys know my solution. It's a solution that I think is a perfect solution, but plenty of people would argue it would just exacerbate the problem, and I think those people are silly and wrong. But I think that you need to regulate big social media outlets like their public utilities and expand the First Amendment to protect people's freedom of speech. That's the only way you're going to truly preserve like the freedom and openness of the Internet that we currently have. But unfortunately, we're going big time in the other direction now. Next. Next, 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 next. Michelle Obama released a closing argument video where she's making the case for Joe Biden. Let's take a look, and then I want to break down for you what I think Democrats and liberals get wrong about this. Look, I, I get it, but I also feel it but. as a black woman who has, like the overwhelming majority of people of color in this nation, done everything in my power to live a life of, of dignity and service and honesty. The knowledge that any of my fellow Americans is more afraid of me then the chaos we are living through right now, well, that hurts. It hurts us all. It is a a heaviness that sits on our hearts. So I want to appeal for some empathy here, too. I want everyone who is still undecided to think about all those folks like me and my ancestors, the moms and dads who work their fingers to the bone to raise their kids right, the teenagers who wear hoodies while working hard to get their diplomas, the millions of folks who look like me and fought and died and toiled as slaves and soldiers and laborers to help build this country. Put yourselves in our shoes for just a moment. 
Imagine how it feels to wake up every day and do your very best to uphold the values that this country claims to hold dear. Truth, honor, decency, only to have those efforts met by scorn, not just by your fellow citizens, but by a sitting president. Imagine how it feels to have suspicion cast on you from the day you were born, simply because of the hue of your skin. Search your hearts and your conscience, and then vote for Joe Biden like your lives depend on it. Look, you all know that politics has never been my thing, but to all the young people out there, to all the black and brown folks, to anyone who feels frustrated and alienated by this whole system, I get it. I really do. But in the face of all of the frustration and alienation I've experienced throughout my life, never once have I considered not voting as a viable option. Not once have I thought about foregoing a right and privilege that so many before me fought and died for. Not once have I let someone else's ignorance and hatred keep me from doing my duty as a citizen because I know we don't have the luxury to assume that things are going to turn out okay. We cannot afford to withhold our votes or waste them on a protest candidate. Listen, I have a lot to say about this. I mean, I could easily be an asshole, but I'm not going to be an asshole because I actually want to get through to some people who might be on the fence with this stuff. If you are a Democrat and you really care deeply about let me try to convert people to vote for Joe who otherwise wouldn't vote for Joe, okay? And specifically in the case of Michelle Obama here, she makes clear she's talking to black and brown folks and young folks, okay? For the love of God, it's not rocket science. We know the answers. Here's how you do it. Appeal to their material interest. Let me repeat that. Appeal to their material interest. So in other words, give them a reason to go vote. By doing, and this video, by the way, is the whole thing is like 20 minutes long. By doing this long video where you basically are just begging and pleading and repeating over and over, vote for Joe, vote early, vote on election day. Vote in a boat, vote on a goat. Like, it's just over and over, it's, it's the same thing. And you're repeating the command without giving the reason. And to the extent that they give reasons, they're not good reasons. So go pick two or three policies where Joe is correct, and he actually means it, and hammer those home repeatedly. This is how you're going to get young people to vote, by saying, hey, the polls show you believe X. Joe Biden is for X, and he's going to fix it, and here's how he's going to do it. Now, do you want to leave that on the table, or do you not want to leave that on the table? But you'll notice something. They don't do this, and the reason they don't do this is because who the hell knows what specific positive policies Joe Biden is for, because his record is that of a neoliberal corporatist, which is abysmal. And then when he even bothers to write down some positive things that he's in favor of, 
He never talks about them because he probably doesn't even really believe in them because it's just virtue signaling for his platform. And there's a reason why it's not front and center. There's a reason why it's not the crux of his campaign. There's a reason why he's not bringing these things up in every interview and every speech. It's because, again, he doesn't really believe in them. So, but anyway, if I'm, giving, if I'm giving advice to these Democrats, thing number one is stop shaming people. Stop making it seem like somebody's privileged or they're not a good person because they don't already agree with you and how you're voting. That's thing number one, is first do no harm. First don't piss people off and insult them and make them feel like shit, okay? But then thing number two is just appeal to them on policy. That's it. And so, you know, I think one of the strongest arguments for Joe is Iran because Trump has ripped up the Iranian nuclear agreement, which was working. It was working. He ripped that up. And he's escalated relentlessly. And now they're even sanctioning medicine going into Iran. So some people are dying because they can't get the proper medicine. Joe Biden is going to be a million times better on that issue where he's not going to do any further escalation. So there's one issue alone. Paris Climate Agreement. Bring that up a million times. Joe will get us back in the Paris Climate Agreement. Trump won't. Joe will get us back in the Paris Climate Agreement. Trump won't. Joe will get us back in the Paris Climate Agreement. Trump won't. Now, the Paris Climate Agreement is not nearly enough. But it is definitely better than doing nothing and being totally bought and owned by ExxonMobil. <laughs> so these differences do matter. So bring up those actual differences. But don't sugarcoat it. Don't give me this nonsense. And this gets to my main point, which is the way she's trying to appeal to people is literally the worst possible way. Because she says, I want to appeal for some empathy. And she says, think of me and my ancestors. Nobody's going to have empathy for you. You were the first lady and your family's worth $40 million. Nobody's going to have empathy for you, Michelle. In fact, you should flip it. You should try to have empathy with the people who aren't voting and figure out why it is they're actually not voting. If you're curious on that and you talk to them, people will tell you, and people will tell you some pretty compelling things. There's an article that I saw Glenn Greenwald reference. It's a a New York Times article where they spoke to black voters in in a Milwaukee barbershop and asked them, these are people who did, voted for Obama twice, did not vote for Hillary. They talked to him, hey, why are you doing this? They gave phenomenal answers about how their lives haven't changed for the better. Nothing's changing for the better. So they don't feel compelled to go vote because they didn't, nothing was done in their material interests. Now, you could shame them. You can insult them. You, you can tell them they're pieces of shit. You could say they're privileged, whatever. That ain't going to get them to the polls. <laughs> you got to give them concrete, real-world things. But she says, I want to appeal for some empathy. Think of me and my ancestors, the millions of folks who looked like me and worked as slaves. Put yourself in our shoes. The numbers show that non-voters are disproportionately young people, poor people, and people of color. She frames it as if, like, obviously the people who aren't voting are on the fence. They're obviously, like, wealthy, white, privileged people. That's how this argument is, is framed. It's like, well, if you're not thinking of voting, listen, think of me, think of my ancestors, have some empathy, think of, you know, the millions of folks who look like me and worked as slaves, put yourself in our shoes. You're saying this, and it really is more to young people, people of color, poor people. You should be having empathy for them. You shouldn't be asking them to have empathy for you. She says, like, imagine having suspicion cast on you because of the hue of your skin. Yeah, that's terrible. What's Joe going to do about that? 
He's going to give more funding to the police. He's going to continue the war on drugs. It's the truth. <laughs> it is. It's the truth. So you can't bring something up like that and then leave it at, as if, like, Biden has the solutions and Trump doesn't. No, you have to actually make that case. Anyway, listen, I'm getting, I'm just, I'm fed up. I'm fed up. And, of course, she had to end it with, like, don't throw your vote away. Listen, a lot of people, I get it. Yes, it's true. Either Trump or Biden will become president. That is true. Um, but, but when people vote for a third-party candidate, it's because they would actually like that third-party candidate to become president. It's not like, it's not just, like, some sort of symbolic thing. No, you vote for the candidate who you most agree with. And that's a lot of people who vote third party. That's what they're doing. That's what they're doing. So it's just like, I don't know. She's just not making a good case. There are ways to make good cases for Joe. I just made one of them. One of the ones that really appealed to me the most was when Trump was threatening to use the Insurrection Act and deploy the U.S. military on our own streets. I was like, whoa, because that's way above. Joe would, he wouldn't do that. I don't think Joe would do that. I think you could argue Joe would be bad on these issues and maybe send in more police, but I don't think he'd try to deploy the U.S. military on U.S. soil. But anyway, like there are arguments to be made, and I just don't see, I don't see any good arguments, and that's annoying. It's almost like I want them to step aside and let people who understand this stuff and know this stuff and live this stuff really make the argument. I have seen pro-Joe arguments that are somewhat convincing. It has never come from a Democratic elite because they don't know how to appeal to people who really believe in certain substantive policy positions because they can't fathom somebody really being motivated by their material uh, interest or by policy. It doesn't, it doesn't register. It doesn't occur. And so you get these weird, you know, platitude cliche bombs and goofy things where a multimillionaire is begging you for empathy to try to put yourself in her shoes. That'd be wonderful for a lot of people because then they'd have $40 million. <laughs> they'd be like, yeah, this is great. But you have to put yourself in their shoes. That's how you get across to voters. Okay. I am... All right, let me, let me talk about Ben Shapiro. Oh, wait, no. Did I fuck this up? Yeah, let me do the vaccine story first, actually. One of the big science stories of our time is the following. CNN has this piece. Trump has personally pressured drug company CEOs repeatedly to speed vaccines. Now, Business Insider also says the following. Trump claimed without justification that the new tighter FDA vaccine guidelines were a, quote, political hit job hours after the White House approved of them. (laughs) What a goofball. Listen, so here's what's happening. President Trump knows that he's in trouble, knows the numbers are looking horrendous for him against Biden, um, knows he's probably going to lose at this point, and he's getting desperate. And this explains a lot of his recent actions, his insane all-capital letters tweet storms that are longer than anyone's previously. 
Um, but one of the things he thinks is like, this is my way out, is let's get a vaccine right before the election and release it. And I'm going to go around and take credit. And I'm going to say, aren't I so amazing? I brought about the cure for COVID. I, Donald Trump, got us this amazing vaccine. It's going to be incredible, folks. That's really what he wants to do. And that's really what he's trying to do, which is why they're reporting. He's talking to drug drug company CEOs and berating them and saying, hurry up with the vaccine. Now, here's the problem, guys. The way these trials work, there is, like, there is no, hey, let's speed this up. Because the, the amount of time that it takes is there to make sure we have all the safeguards in place, to make sure we get it right, to make sure we don't rush to the market something that's either unsafe or doesn't work. Like, it's going to take however long it's going to take. I know that's not a... I know it's not a popular thing to say, or even like a positive thing to say, because everybody wants it ASAP, one that works at least, but like this is the reality of the situation, guys. This is the way the world works. If you're going to do it right, it's going to take some time. And so for him to, I mean, the fact that he's like literally calling them up and yelling at them, that's so funny. He thinks, he's such a baby, like he thinks it's that simple. If I just call, call them up and start yelling at them, then they'll listen. <laughs> what? What? Oh, my God. What a goofball. What a goofball. But there's another, obviously, giant downside to all this, which is, let's say for a second, they, they do skip out on certain procedures, certain testing, and they rush it to market. Well, then what happens? Nowhere near as many people are going to take that vaccine. You want to know why? Because they will rightly have concluded hey, I'm not sure this is safe. They probably skipped a few steps here. Of course, that's what's going to happen. I have that feeling. Do you? Listen, I am a huge believer in science, okay? Huge. But if you rush a vaccine and release it before the election, do I think that that vaccine is going to work or is safe? I really, I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. I probably wouldn't take it if it was released before the election because it, it does seem like it was rushed and they skipped out on stuff and they're really rolling the dice and it's more of a political move. It's more of a political move. That's what it is. It's like a, Trump is the one injecting politics as he pretends like it's the, it's the Democrats doing politics. How? Why? What do you think? The CEOs of the drug companies are secret Democrats and they want to hold back the vaccine before the election because they don't want to make you look good, Mr. President. <laughs> He's crazy enough to believe that. He really is. So, again, this is, I'm not one to come out here and pester everybody about the differences between, uh, you know, Biden and Trump. But let's keep it real skis here. Just in general, abiding by scientists and what they say, listening to the experts, following the science, there is no comparison. Obviously, a Joe Biden presidency would be so much better on that front. So much better because Trump really is like a toddler to the point where he thinks I could literally call up the CEO of a pharma company and berate them and they like, sorry, Mr. President, we'll have the vaccine out this afternoon. <laughs> what? He's just he's he's a mess. This guy, he really is. It's like that video that came out a few months ago where he was at you know at some event and they were talking about how the scientists are predicting and it's really borne out too that the extreme weather events are going to ramp up. 
and this is climate change. This is what's going to happen. And Trump said something along the lines of, I don't think they know it's going to happen. I think it's going to cool down. Or they were talking about, the, I think it was the wildfires, actually. It's going to cool down. That's what's going to happen. It's going to cool down. And everybody was like, oh, my God. Like, he has no problem just saying, what is it that the scientists and the experts say? What is it that they say? The people who've dedicated their entire lives to these things? Okay, I disagree. <laughs> like, he has no problem just being like, no, wrong. I don't agree with that. Nobody cares if you agree with that. Who are you? Who are you? You're Donald Trump. You're the president. You don't know anything about this. I trust the guy who's dedicated his life to studying this stuff. I think the scientists are wrong. I think it's going to cool down. Yeah, it's going to cool down in the sense that the winter's coming up, so it's going to get cooler in that sense. But long-term trends, yes, we're moving in a warmer direction. The climate is changing. That is a fact. I don't think the scientists really know that much, to tell you the truth. I don't think they know. I mean, this, again, this another clear example just like that of a guy who doesn't know about the science, doesn't follow it, doesn't care, just views it through a political lens and is trying to rush it. But in the process of rushing it, you're actually further undermining our institutions and further undermining the belief in science. Because now people will rightly say, hey, maybe the science is tainted because this guy's steering the ship, and obviously he's just doing it for personal gain. So this is not good. The fact that this is even a thing. Like, I can't imagine anybody else ever, like, trying to interject in scientific proceedings and, like, change it. Like, he's trying to... There's nothing you could do. You have to let them do the research, do the studies, figure out what works. You can't just be like, we're going to skip a few steps. He's out of his mind, man. He really is. Okay, let's go to Rudy. So Rudy Giuliani was in the debate prep room with Donald Trump. This is one of those things where the speculation is this is where COVID was being passed around like hotcakes. Um, The Amy Coney Barrett thing is another thing people are pointing to where they say, oh, a lot of people who were there ended up getting COVID. Maybe the super spreader event was the Amy Coney Barrett thing. Um, But almost everybody in that debate room of death has gotten COVID. Well, Rudy Giuliani was in that room, and um, he took a COVID-19 test to see if he had it. Then he went and did a Fox News interview while he was waiting for his results, and this happened. Podcast, Rudy Giuliani's Common Sense. Um, Mayor, you heard Joe Biden there. He said that the scientists say it's okay. He is going to... um, be up for the debate. President Trump has said that he wants to be there on October 15th. We all witnessed that debate up close in the arena there. How is this next one going to look different? How would you like it to look different? <laughs> I don't know, Martha. Uh, the last one, the last one, the last one was um, going to be historic. I think as as a debate, uh, probably a lot having to do with the pent up emotions of both men mm-hmm. going into it. I think that the next one I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely certain is going to be more, um, let's say, within the rules. I think they both uh, realize that they, they accomplish more that way. But the reality is, when I hear that response, <coughs> that Joe is going to listen to the experts and be guided and, and be, be determined that the president is going to do it, 
I mean, I was the mayor of New York City. I didn't always listen to the experts. The experts aren't always right. Nobody elected the experts. They elected you. I'll give you an example. Scientists may want you to shut down out of, out of an excess of caution, but you may realize that the damage of shutdown is greater than if you don't shut down. In other words, you're going to kill people. Yeah. People are going to die of uh, suicide. Or, so yeah, there's no, there are no experts on governing. I understand there's what you're no saying. There's no such thing as scientific rules for governing. I understand what you're saying. But, you know, I find that what, what, what that, tell, that tells me the difference between a man who's never been an executive, Joe Biden, mm -hmm. 47 years, doing basically nothing in Congress, Senate, and a man who's been an executive who has to make decisions for other people. But when you look at the polls, and I know that you, you know everybody questions the polls, but, but pretty consistently, um, Joe Biden does outperforms the president on the handle it, who would handle COVID better. So there, there seems to be a lot of appetite for people who think that the president has been, uh, you know, not serious enough about following these guidelines. At least if you believe those numbers. He coughed his way through the whole interview. He couldn't stop coughing. Almost everybody in that debate prep room has COVID. Rudy just took a test, did a Fox News interview. By the way, I haven't heard anything since then. I haven't heard anything since he was coughing throughout the whole interview. If I was a betting man, perhaps I'd say he probably has it. He probably has it. And he may have pulled the Chris Christie move and the Donald Trump move of like, pump me up early, baby. Give me the antibody stuff. Give me the remdesivir. Give me the steroids. Let's do it. Let's. I don't want to go a step further in the wrong direction. Let's nip this thing in the bud as, as quickly as we possibly can. Um, and I got to say, in the, in the case of Chris Christie, it actually is concerning because he's super overweight. So he could. It's conceivably possible that something really bad could happen. But he is also getting phenomenal care. All these guys are incredibly wealthy, so they get phenomenal care, um, something that most people don't have the luxury of getting. So anyway, um, coughing through the whole thing, he goes on to talk about like how Joe Biden with his mask obsession, how that's like silly. Come on, dude, this irony cannot escape you. It cannot escape you. Come on. You probably have COVID. You're coughing through the interview and you're like, idiots with the mask. <laughs> and I think it's just, it's the beautiful cherry on top that he's arguing against expertise. Now, understand something, guys. In some ways, some narrow ways, that argument makes sense. It is a very elitist impulse to say, let's default to the experts, namely to override the democratic will. And this is something you see in both parties um, this is, you know, this is part of corporatism and neoliberalism is that like if the democratic will of the people is Medicare for all, well, let's bring out some, some experts to say, well, actually the way the market will function most efficiently is if we do a system that's more like Obamacare where it's a hybrid and we have market elements and we have government elements. Like, yes, it is a thing that you rely on experts to override the democratic will of the people. And it, this, uh, this version of like, technocracy is very elitist. So there is a minor point there. Here's why he's wrong, though. He's talking about it more broadly, and specifically when it comes to science, that's the reference here. And if there was ever a time to rely on experts, it's when it comes to science issues. 
And that, that's the real part of leadership is knowing when you don't know. Knowing when you're an idiot and there are people who are experts on this who spent their whole lives researching it and learning about it and you defer to their wisdom. That's what real leadership is. Real leadership is like, let me marry together these good ideas and, you know, be willing to put my ego aside and recognize, hey, I don't know everything. And so I'm going to bring in people who do know and hear them out and react accordingly. But he, he's, he smugly dismisses that idea. He's literally arguing against the whole idea of expertise and science. Especially when it comes to a pandemic, you should be listening to the scientists. Now, does that mean that, hey, there's one answer in terms of how to deal with the pandemic and that's it? No, no. But if you listen to a bunch of different experts, they could give you a menu of options as to how we attack this thing and what we do with society. Do we shut down? Do we not shut down? Do we half shut down and half not shut down? Do, do we do a stimulus? Do we do uh, nationalization of wages? Like these are all things that need to be ironed out. But what Rudy is effectively saying is, and this is the subtext of everything he says, I'm going to listen to my gut and do whatever the hell I want. And it's just unfortunate for everybody that Rudy's an idiot. He's a moron. So what this guy's gut says is not going to lead you in a very good direction. <laughs> I would much rather have the democratic will of the people and the word of experts and scientists in terms of how to deal with the pandemic and how to manage the economic fallout and things of that nature. But, I mean, this is just rich in irony. Going after Biden for masks, downplaying scientists and experts as he probably has COVID and he's coughing through the interview. So this next story is going to make you feel things, and I say that because it made me feel things. This is a Vice News segment, and it's on this issue, namely in Mexico in this instance. I don't know if this happens elsewhere, um, but it's called the Pirate Ambulance Scam. Pirate Ambulance Scam. Let's take a look, and then I have a lot to say. making opportunities, but some people just can't stop scamming. Mexico City police say scammers are patrolling neighborhoods, intercepting 911 calls, and picking up people who need to go to the hospital, then making them pay a high fee for the ride. And if it's not bad enough to rip off sick people, they're doing it in ugly vans. On top of that, they sometimes take people to medically outdated private clinics, which offer bribes for new patients. Police say they know of about 2,000 of these pirate paramedic vans, and they're trying to put a stop to them. It's a business that some people make based on the need and the pain of a person who is hurt and the desperation of wanting to go to a hospital and the fear that sometimes it infects If you were listening closely to that description there, they're simply describing how the healthcare system in the United States works. 
and they're calling it a scam. They're like, this, they, listen, there's this scam thing going on in Mexico. It's called the pirate ambulance scam where, like, they'll pick you up, and then they charge you money and take advantage of you when you're sick. And then they bring you to a sketchy private clinic where they charge you more money, and they don't even have as good care as the regular hospitals. You're literally exactly describing how our system in the U.S. works everywhere, everywhere. So, listen, I have the numbers here. An ambulance in the United States usually costs about $400 to $1,200. If you need to get picked up by an ambulance for whatever reason, you're getting a bill for anywhere from $400 to $1,200. Now, hospital costs in the United States, they average $3,949 per day. And... a hospital stay, on average, costs, oh my God, this is incredible, $15,734. The average hospital stay in the U.S. costs $15,734. Vice News is doing a segment on a scam in Mexico where they're describing the horror of having an ambulance pick you up, and they charge you money, and then they take you to get health care, and they charge you more money at a not-too-great facility. Literally the entire U.S. healthcare system. Guys, listen. I told you, I told you. The U.S. healthcare system is a scam on top of a scam within a scam. That's what it is. Because big pharma is a scam. The, the care providers, the hospitals are a scam. The insurers are a scam. So there's multiple scams all going on. Everybody's scamming everybody, bro. I love how they did this segment. Nobody paused to go, hold on, well, carry the six. I don't... This is just describing exactly what happens in the U.S. <laughs> Do a segment on that, Vice. Do a segment on that. The entire U.S. healthcare system is a scam. I still haven't been able to get over. You guys remember that video that went viral? It probably had to be a couple years ago now. Um, There's a video that went viral where people, somebody went to the UK, or it was some UK talk show or whatever, a YouTube channel, and they told people on the street, like, they asked them, how much do you think it costs to get X treated in the US? And they would answer, and virtually everybody was like, you're kidding. That can't be real. Are you serious? It costs that much to give birth? To give birth. And that video went viral. It blew up. I'm telling you, one of the main reasons of this show is I really want to impress upon you, like you don't even understand how much you're getting screwed if you're in the United States of America. Like you don't get it. You don't get it. It hasn't really landed yet. Like, you're getting scammed on a regular basis, son. It's nonstop. I'm always thinking about, for example, the fact that the U.S. is the only developed country without paid vacation time by law. The U.S. is the only developed country without paid maternity leave by law. There are a million facts like this that are just insane the idea that we're the only developed country that doesn't have one version or another of a universal health care system. We're just, we're so scammed. We get so scammed on a regular basis and people just take it. We just sit back like cucks. 
Like, we don't have to take this. We can demand things from our leaders, but we have to actually do it. We have to actually demand it. We have to actually get out in the streets and do a general strike and say, we'll burn this whole thing down if you don't give us some basic fundamental rights. Free health care, free college would be nice. Paid vacation time by law would be amazing. There was a story the other day in Switzerland, $25 minimum wage now or something. Ours is $7.25. It hasn't changed in over a decade. Nobody can live on $7.25 working full-time. You can work full-time and not make enough money to live. Do you understand how insane that is? Anyway, look out for this scam if you're in Mexico or literally any state and any county in the United States of America. The New York Times editorial board has endorsed Joe Biden. Hold on, let me put on my shocked face. Oh, goodness, Papa, New York Times endorsed Joe Biden? Well, pinch me and call me spanky, Papa. Gosh, golly gee. <laughs> Why did they even bother? Like, we got, we got it. Like, without them saying anything, we all assumed that they're endorsing Joe Biden. But the reason we're talking about this, the reason we're talking about this, um, is because they did it in the exact way that you would expect the New York Times to do it, which makes it more insufferable than if they said nothing. The New York Times editorial board endorsed Joe Biden's White House bid on Tuesday, throwing its support behind the former vice president four weeks before Election Day. The paper cast a potential Biden presidency as a jolt back to normalcy that could tap into decades of experience in Washington to unite a country riven with division. Riven? Riven? I don't know if I've ever seen that word written down. Um, Mr. Biden has vowed to restore the soul of America. It is a painful reminder that the country is weaker, angrier, less hopeful, and more divided than it was four years ago. With this promise, Mr. Biden is assuring the public that he recognizes the magnitude of what the next president is being called upon to do. The editorial board wrote, in the midst of unrelenting chaos, Mr. Biden is offering an anxious, exhausted nation something beyond policy or ideology. His campaign is rooted in steadiness, experience, compassion, and decency. Let me make this as clear as possible. There is no such thing as offering something beyond policy or ideology. The whole ball game is policy and ideology. This is like saying, hey, the Lakers are bringing in a new player for the team. But don't worry, this is beyond basketball. The whole point is basketball. They're a basketball team. You're electing a president. This is politics. The root word being policy. <laughs> like the whole point is, what are we going to do with the country? But this is too perfect because the people who work for the New York Times, they're not feeling the economic pain right now. That's why, notice everything I just read you. What came across to them, the big, the big problem is, oh, we're so divided as a people, but 
Ah, we need to unify. Yes. Nobody cares about your like emotional perception of what's going on in the country. People can't pay the bills. What was it? Going back a few months now, it was like 32 or 33% of the country couldn't pay their rent. And that number's only going up because we haven't had a stimulus. 28 million people on the brink of homelessness. I mean, it's just stunning that they can live in their own bubble so deep that they write an endorsement and they say things like, this is, this is not about policy or ideology. It's about bringing together a divided country. Donald Trump won. You know who was in office right before him? Barack Obama and Joe Biden. Was there, were we not divided when Biden was vice president? Of course we were divided. So why would you think we wouldn't be divided if Joe Biden becomes president? And none of the root problems that led to Trump have been addressed, and Biden is not going to even try to address any of the root problems that led to Trump, namely a failing political establishment that had been screwing people for decades. It's just like you couldn't, I couldn't parody what they said anymore. Again, uh, his campaign is rooted in steadiness, experience, compassion, and decency. Steadiness? The dude could barely put together a coherent sentence. His most famous moment in the debates was when he was talking about how put the record player on at night and let the kids hear words. Steadiness. Experience? Yeah, experience like the Iraq War. Miserable, terrible, war crime, Patriot Act, spying on everybody, outsourcing deals, NAFTA. Experience isn't by definition good. It depends what is the experience, and it's not good in the case of Joe. Compassion and decency, he's the architect of the modern mass incarceration crisis we have. Compassion and decency. Are you kidding me? I'll 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 read you a little bit more real quick. A President Biden would embrace the rule of law and restore public confidence in democratic institutions. He would return a respect for science and expertise to the government. He would stock his administration with competent, qualified, principled individuals. He would stand with America's allies and against adversaries and seek to, and, excuse me, he would stand with America's allies and against adversaries that would seek to undermine democracy. He would work to address systemic injustices. The truest thing said there is he would stand with America's allies. That's the truest thing. Now, what does that mean? Yeah, we're going to go back to, well, we're still doing it. We never stopped doing it. You know, Trump might say certain things, but he's still giving Saudi Arabia a hand job daily. He's still giving Israel a hand job daily. Biden's just going to continue that. He's going to stand with our allies by unnecessarily giving billions of dollars to Israel, the apartheid state, and by helping Saudi Arabia continue their genocide in Yemen. That's not something to be proud of. I'm... He would stock his administration with competent, qualified, principled individuals. Principled? That's right. From 2008 to 2016, the government was full of principled people. It's not that Citibank gave Obama a list and said, here's who's going to your administration. And he said, yes, sir. That's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. And Joe's going to do the same thing. He's going to bring in the industry. They literally won't even do a lobbyist ban in, in, in his administration. And then they hid behind identity. They were like, oh, well, there's a lot of black and brown lobbyists. I guess you might be racist if you don't want lobbyists in there. Like, it, I don't know if they're the dumbest people in the world and they have West Wing brain, or 
if they're liars. But this is it's gross either way. Again, I don't want to I don't want to come down too hard here because yes, as I've said to you guys before, am I going to be mad at you if you vote Biden? Of course I'm not going to be mad at you. But there are ways to make the argument that are non-cringe, and there are ways to make the argument that are reasonable. I've heard good pro-Biden arguments. This is not that. If anything, this pisses me off more. As I said, if they said nothing, I would have assumed they endorsed Biden, and I wouldn't hate them as much. Instead, they endorsed him, and they did this garbage. And it's like, uh, what are you guys doing? Like, who are you kidding? Who are you kidding? Who's going to read? Biden is going to restore the soul of America. Biden is going to need to be pumped up daily full of drugs to make sure he can speak in coherent sentences because he's on his way out skis. Now, that's the truth. You might not like the way that sounds, but that's the truth. So let's not stop bullshitting. We already have one of the worst bullshitters of all time, Trump, as president. And we're, we're going to usher in the Biden era by being equal and opposite bullshitters. I really can't stand this, like, dumb West Wing version of thinking where everything has to be this grandiose, platitude-ridden speech. It's like, just say it. You're, you want Biden because he's not Donald Trump. Like, just say it. That's what, that's what it is. You don't have to give me all this nonsense about he's rooted in steadiness and experience and compassion and decency. What does any of that mean? You're just saying words that sound good. That's it. I can't believe, like, Everything pisses me off these days. Like, there's nothing that I'm just reading. I'm like, yeah, okay. That's, I, everything pisses me off. I, this makes my blood boil. And I'm pretty sure that's clear to all of you now. Okay, next. So today is the 19th anniversary of the war in Afghanistan. 19 years. The war in Afghanistan has been able to drive for quite a while. Very shortly, wait, the war in Afghanistan, I think, can fight in the war in Afghanistan, right? How old do you have to be to fight in the military? This is incredible. So... In two years, the war in Afghanistan will have full legal rights as an adult in the United States of America. The war in Afghanistan can drink in two years. And you know what's the craziest thing? It is an absolute guarantee we will still be there in two years. Absolute guarantee. So it's the 19th 19th anniversary, and this tweet really broke me. This is from Stars and Stripes. It's like a military outlet. Years after they fought in Afghanistan, U.S. troops watched their children deploy to the same war. I read the whole article. They're not presenting that as a negative. They're not necessarily presenting it as a positive, but they almost present it as like a value neutral, like this is the thing that's happening. There are moments in the article where they try to allude to, like, hey, we've made a lot of progress, haven't we? So there are little propaganda lines of, like, it's kind of been worth it, right? They say something about, well, we've ushered in a new era where there's more freedom and democracy and freedom of speech. Right. 
I'm sure. I can't even put into words how absurd this is. There was an there was a comic that was made in 2008. I think it was Matt Bowers. And he drew a father soldier and a son soldier and recreated this exact scenario where the kid's like, Daddy, I'm going to the same war you fought in. And the dad says, that's right, son. This is just like getting the same factory job that's always been in our family. Something along those lines. The whole idea of that was to show how grotesque and insane and out of bounds and out of whack the whole system has become. And the war fever is and the military industrial complex is. And that actually came true. It came true. 19 years in. And these are the kinds of articles that get written. By the way, if you watch CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, you wouldn't even know that we're still in multiple wars, have at least two wars where there's boots on the ground, as they say, right? And then you have, what, six others at least, probably more, where it's like drone warfare, and it's like one version or another of intervention militarily. If you watch corporate media, it's like we're not, it's like we're in a time of peace. They just don't cover the wars. They act like we're not there, even though we are. Never in my wildest imagination did I think back when we started these things that this is where we'd be today and the system would be as broken as it is and everybody would be so thoroughly beaten down. Like, there are people who probably don't even know we're still at war because they've never talked about the media and the politicians don't do anything to stop it. And it just keeps going on and on and on and on and on. You know it's bad because nobody even bothers to define victory anymore. This drives me crazy. I remember back in the early 2000s, 2003, 2004, 2005, where there would be heated debates. Have we reached our goals? Well, here are the goals. Have we reached these goals? Nope, we need more money. We need more time. Now, goals. Goals? Nobody says anything about goals. The idea is, like, what do you mean? That this is what we do. We're the United States of America. We invade places, and we bomb stuff, and then we stay there. The original reasons for going into Iraq and Afghanistan, what were they? We got to get Saddam Hussein. We got to get Saddam. He worked with al-Qaeda. He worked with Osama bin Laden on 9-11. And the reason why we're in Afghanistan is we got to get Osama bin Laden. We got to get al-Qaeda. That's where they are. Osama's been dead. Saddam Hussein has been dead. Al-Qaeda's triple digits is how many al-Qaeda there are in Afghanistan. A couple hundred, maybe? That's according to our intelligence agencies. So why are we still in any of these places? Why are we still there? We've done the things that we said early on, like these are the things we're there for. Okay, you did them. Why are we still there? Nobody will tell you. Nobody will say anything. And the reality is, this is pretty ugly, but it has a lot to do with the fact that war is very profitable. Smedley Butler said it. War is a racket. We have a military-industrial complex, and a lot of people make a lot of money as a result of us permanently being at war. That's one of the major reasons. Another major reason is natural resources. 
Oil production shot through the roof when we started occupying Iraq. In the case of Afghanistan, there's trillions of dollars of mineral wealth. We don't want to leave that. If we leave, oh, my God, China can get that. We don't want to allow them to get that. So we stay there, and we act like, oh, there's something, something, freedom and democracy or something. We need to beat the bad guys. There's so many bad guys here. We bombed a hospital, a Doctors Without Borders hospital, a couple of years ago in Afghanistan, killing massive numbers of civilians. We've allied with warlords in Afghanistan who had child sex slaves, and then when our military people blew the whistle on it, they were dishonorably discharged. So we're on the side of the pedophiles with child sex slaves, the warlords. But something, something, freedom and democracy, we got to be there to maintain order or whatever. This is all a big joke. And at the same time, we're spending billions and billions and billions of dollars every month in these wars. Every month. People here don't have health care. People here are up to their eyeballs in student loan debt. Our infrastructure is crumbling and gets a grade of D plus, according to the Society of Civil Engineers. That doesn't make you want to burn the whole thing down. I don't know what will, bro. I know I brought this fact up a million times, but I'm going to bring it up a million more. $80 billion was the increase in one year, the increase in one year in our military budget. Free college for everybody would have cost $60 billion. We did the military increase. We didn't do the free college, and nobody said a goddamn word about, how are you going to pay for it? Father and son fighting in the war in Afghanistan. And this is presented as a value-neutral thing. We should look at it like this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. It's a monstrous thing. And we should all be against it. Bring the troops home immediately. Reinvest here at home immediately. What are we doing? We don't have any moral authority anyway. Look at our government. Look at who runs it. And the world is just supposed to accept, like, they're in charge. What? (laughs) We're in charge? Trump can't run an Arby's, never mind an empire. Well... It was bound to happen eventually, I suppose, but it really does look like Donald Trump's electoral magic has worn off. It's no longer 2016. It's now 2020. Biden keeps growing a lead. It's bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Most recent poll I saw, Boston Herald, 21-point national lead. 21 points for Biden. So um, one of the recent stories made an impact. Perhaps years ago, this wouldn't have made as big of an impact, but it really hit hard this time. I'm talking, of course, about Donald Trump's taxes. Look at this poll result. Does it make you angry if this is all Trump paid, $750 in federal income taxes? Yes, it does, 68%. No, it doesn't, 24%. Economist and YouGov poll. Only 24% say, no, it doesn't make me mad he paid just $750 in taxes. Even many members of his own base are like, you know, uh, and here's the thing. They all know, hey, I paid more than that. 
and I don't make anywhere near as much, or I don't have as nearly as high a net worth as NumNuts over here. So he could have a multi-billion dollar net worth and pay $750 in taxes. When, you know, somebody makes 45 grand a year and they paid way more than that. And they're like, oh, well, that ain't right. That ain't right. There was a time when a story like this wouldn't land. Now it landed. See, I thought, in my opinion, when you looked at uh, the information that came out in the tax leaks, I thought the bigger bombshells were that, number one, um, Trump made $73 million from foreigners as president. So that includes foreign investors and governments. And that's a clear violation of the Emoluments Clause. And now you know the president is not necessarily working in our best interest. He's going to serve the people who gave him that money. So that's corruption 101. I th- thought that was a bigger bombshell. I thought the other bigger bombshell was that he wrote off over $20 million. Um, and it was just money he gave to Ivanka, which is totally illegal and self-dealing and corruption again. The other thing is the fraud angle of it, where he would undervalue his assets to the IRS. We'd pay lower taxes, and then he'd overvalue them elsewhere in financial documents, which is just your – so you're lying. You're committing fraud. You're lying to the IRS about this. So those were, I feel like, the bigger scandals. Um, but no, it turns out that the thing that is really landing with the public is, dude, you only paid $750 in taxes? Now, the reason why I didn't think this would be as big of a deal is because he doesn't, he's not actually making money. So that's why he's not paying taxes, because he's not making anything. <laughs> like, he's bleeding money every year. He's hemorrhaging money. That's basically why he's paying no taxes. But that doesn't matter to people. I think the way people are thinking about this is his net worth. So they know he's worth billions and he's only paying $750 in taxes. And they see the discrepancy between the net worth and how much he's paying. And they think that's egregious, especially since they're not worth nearly as much and they're paying way more than he is. So it did land and it's hurting him. Oh, the other thing about the leaks that was amazing is that within the next two or three years, he's got to pay back hundreds of millions of dollars that he doesn't have that he borrowed and that he doesn't have. That might actually be the thing that brings him down. Like if, when he's out of office, like that might actually bring him down. You can't owe the IRS tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars and then not pay it. You can't do that. Only 24% are defending him. 68% are bothered by that. Would you look at that? We have a system that's biased in favor of the wealthy and well-connected. A system that's biased in favor of the billionaires. I told you. Story came out, 2018. For the first time ever, billionaires paid an effectively lower income tax rate than working class people. So what we have is a regressive tax system. That's what that is. People are seeing this in a stark, clear example with Trump, and they hate it. And they hate it. Now, it is true both parties gave us this messed up tax code. Don't get it twisted. But... Teflon Don is no longer Teflon, and things are making a dent now, and he's appearing desperate, and as I told you guys, with a month left before the election, it really does appear like it's game, set, match on him. It ain't 2016. I don't think he has a 2016 comeback in him. His philosophy and his strategy is abysmal. 2016's was good. This one is terrible, and um, it's like watching a slow, painful death unfold. Okay, last story, Ben Shapiro.
the Donald Trump ship is sinking very fast, and a lot of prominent right-wingers are realizing that, and they're fleeing. So Ben Shapiro says the following, if Donald Trump loses by double digits to a comatose 78-year-old career politician plagued by incoherence and logoria, logoria, I actually don't know how to pronounce that, but it means, you know, like being long-winded or whatever, uh, and pledging to enact the most radical left-wing agenda in American political history, I'm sorry, but that's on Trump. The campaign against Biden isn't difficult. It just requires Trump to take himself out of the spotlight and put Biden in it, and Trump refuses to do it. Now, to that last tweet, mm, it really ain't that simple, Ben. It's really not as simple as like, hey, you shut up and let Biden take the spotlight, and then Biden will lose. I agree with him that it would be a closer race in that scenario, but here's the main point. When you're president and you have a pandemic on your watch and what is effectively an economic depression on your watch, it almost it almost doesn't even matter. Even if you had the perfect strategy and you did everything right, you could still lose because those material conditions are going to override everything else. The economy is going to override everything else. The sickness and the deaths as a result of the sickness are going to override everything else because everything else is less serious in the face of these crises. So even if he was running a great campaign, he still would probably lose. But here we have a situation where he's not running a great campaign and he's got the depression and the pandemic. So that's why these guys are running. Again, this is Ben Shapiro saying this. If Donald Trump loses by double digits to a comatose 78-year-old career politician plagued by incoherence and whatever that word is, <laughs> I still don't know how to say, and pledging to enact the most radical left-wing agenda in American political history, I'm sorry, but that's on Trump. By the way, the idea that Biden is promising to enact the most radical left-wing agenda in American history, that's beyond comical. Beyond comical. FDR was way further left. LBJ was further left. Are you kidding me? He's going to be like Bill Clinton and like Obama, which is center-right. Most radical left-wing agenda. Oh, please. He said he's not going to raise taxes on anybody making $400,000 a year or less. Radical left-wing agenda. I wish... He's not going to do Medicare for all. He's not going to do free college. What a goofball. Radical left-wing agenda. But anyway, what Ben is saying is, hey, Trump owns this. It's all on Trump. In a weird way, I'm actually going to slightly disagree with that. It ain't just Trump, Ben. It's Trump, and it's the other Republicans, and it's the right-wing pundits. Like, you all own this, bro. You all own this. You want to know why? Because Donald Trump is the Republican id. That's why. You understand? He's the Republican id. So, in other words, Donald Trump is Mitt Romney. Donald Trump is fill-in-the-blank with whatever Republican you want. George W. Bush, Ted Cruz. The only difference is Donald Trump also does mean tweets and has no filter. That's the only difference. He tweets in all caps and with exclamation points, and he ruffles people's feathers. He's got zero filter. But policy-wise, he's exactly like every other Republican. And this is the main point of me talking about this, is do not let these weasel, weasels wiggle their way out of this. Because what they're going to try to do in, in a situation where there's a Trump bloodbath and he gets crushed, all the rats are going to flee the ship. And they're going to be like, oh, yeah, no, see, but the thing was, it's not that the right-wing brand is still good. Conservatism is still good. The whole problem was Trump. 
He's the whole problem. The rest of the Republicans, me and my homies are good. I don't know what you're talking about. Ted Cruz is still great. You know, George W. Bush is still great. All these right-wing pundits who fell in line behind Trump, no, no, no. What they, see, they were really the right ones, and Trump was wrong. And then, see, they're, they have legitimacy and credibility on their own that's not tied to Trump, so take them seriously. And by the way, the media helps people like Ben Shapiro, too, because they do have this false dichotomy of, like, you're the good Republicans, you're the bad Republicans. And as soon as Trump is gone, they will, they've already been rehabilitating the run-of-the-mill conservatives, and they're going to do it again. And this is Ben Shapiro trying to establish that. Hey, hey, if Trump loses, it's not because conservatism isn't, isn't cool. Because he's an ideologue. He's a hardcore conservative. So he wants to be able to save that, have that not be tarnished, and have Trump take all the blame. I'm not buying it, Ben. It is the ideology. Yes, it's the craziness, all that, for sure. But it's also his ideology, which is deeply unpopular. The fact he's continued the wars. The fact he did the 2017 Republican tax cuts for the rich. See, Ben wants to defend all those things and say just Trump gets all the blame. Weasel. Weasel. Go down with the ship, dog. Go down with the ship. He senses it's coming, and he doesn't want to do that. All right, guys. Enjoy the debate tonight. I love y'all. I'll probably be live tweeting it, and I will see you back here. You'll probably see me before then, but I will see you back here um, on Monday. Peace.